Philippians chapter 1, I'll be reading Philippians 1, verses 22 to 26. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word through his imprisoned apostle Paul. Let's pray. Lord, let us taste of the beauty and the privilege, the grace that it is to have the word preached to us. Work. Continue to sanctify and mold and cause us who believe, who are yours, who are secure, to persevere to the end, holding to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so to that end, help me say what is right and what is true. Help, help, help me give word pictures of what Paul has just written to us. Don't let me stray from the meaning and the implications of the text. You're good. So more than anything, cause our hearts to love the truth, any truth that is spoken this morning to the glory of Jesus. Amen. What we see in this text this morning is the importance of the ministry of the Word in the life of the church. Remember the context is verse 21. For me to live is Christ. And for Paul, when he says that, what he means by it, if I go on living, it will mean go on preaching. It will mean teaching and instruction. And I'm going to come to you, Philippians. It means the ministry of the word if I live. Because it's Christ. And to die is gain means the end of his use, of his ministry, of the word. But for Paul, it's not in his power to choose whether he lives or whether he dies, how his court case goes under, under Caesar. But the question is this, suppose that he did have a choice to go on living and serving or to die and go be with Jesus. What would Paul choose? 
His first answer in a particular context is, I don't know. Look at verse 22. I'm not sure. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, life or death, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. Up to verse 21, Paul is pondering life and death only into, in relation to what it would mean to him personally. Now, he poses the question of what he would choose if he knew that he could be a means to others' joy and progression in the faith. If I'm to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I should choose, I cannot tell. What do you mean, Paul? That's what he goes on to explain. In other words, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire, in one sense, is to depart and to be with Christ. For that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, Philippian Christians. And then comes verses 25 and 26. They are the nevertheless section. The flow is like this. Even though I'm hard-pressed to choose between the two, nevertheless, because I am convinced that to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, therefore, I know I would choose to remain if it were up to me. That's what he's saying in 25, 26. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. If I'm acquitted and freed, this is what I would do. I would return to you, Philippians. I'd preach to you. I'd teach you. I'd exhort you. I would, I would instruct you for your development, for your joy in the faith, your joy in Christ. And then the ultimate goal, verse 26, for the glory of the Lord. And the way he phrases it is, so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So, so how, according to this text, will their expanding and their glorying in Jesus Christ happen? His answer is, because of me. 
It's right there. In me. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory. Because of my coming to you again. And so, the lesson is clear. The ministry of the word to believers is necessary for the progress and the perseverance of their faith. What is the relationship between church life and the ministry of the word in preaching and teaching. Many would say, Paul, come on, if you get out, why would you ever, ever go back to Philippi? They're already Christians. They're already saved. Get on with it and just find unsaved people, Paul. In, in many circles, there's this idea of preaching salvation messages to the lost. And then to the saved, to the church members, to the baptized, we're, we're doing something else. We're preaching something else other than salvation. And that is just utterly unbiblical. That demarcation. I'm going to spend a few minutes uh, reading an article that came out last Saturday uh, in the midst of what we're all experiencing around the world and in this country and related to church, church life. It's by Carl Truman. Uh, look, um, I've edited a lot out. I'm not going to read the whole article for time's sake, but to get the flow and bring it right back to the content of what we're talking about this morning. Truman writes, on numerous occasions over the last six months, I have heard or seen COVID's effect on churches described as apocalyptic. Frequently, the word has been used in its improper but colloquial sense of catastrophic or disastrous, referring to the chaos it has created for worship services or the damage it has done to budgets. Sometimes, however, it has also been used in its correct sense. Oh, the word apocalypse means to reveal. It has been used in its correct sense to refer to the way COVID has revealed things previously hidden. For example, the fact that some government officials consider casinos and pet grooming more important than worship services. Or that the relationship of State power to ecclesiastical, that is church authority, is highly contested even within many churches. And then he goes on and he gives statistics. The pollsters are out there, okay? Boiled down, he says this. They're telling us three out of every ten pre-COVID worshipers might stay away from Sunday morning church services for good. Many of us have heard people commenting on how watching a church service online, at leisure, on a Sunday, or what other 
other day of the week is more convenient to the consumer, it has proved rather attractive. And this raises a number of obvious questions. Why not? Is anything lost thereby? How might those of us who think physical presence at worship is essential, how might we respond? He goes on. Part of the answer is that the church is a community. Community is integral to the picture of the church that we find in the book of Acts and also, ironically, underlies the problems that Paul often addresses in his letters. Where there is no community, there can be no community dysfunction. I love it. Where there is no family, there could be no family dysfunction. And none of us have ever been without dysfunction in our families. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm off the script for a second. <laughs> there can't be. How are you going to practice much of the New Testament if you're not in community? Who do you got to be patient with? Who do you got to forgive? Who do you got to bear with and put up with? That's God's design. Now, where am I? There it is. Where there is no community, there can be no community dysfunction. And community works best when there is real human contact and interaction. To take an extreme example, a screen cannot hold your hand and pray for you on your deathbed. Of more significance are the elements of worship, the reading and the preaching of the word, prayer, singing, and yes, baptism in the Lord's Supper. And all these require present communal action. Even preaching is in a sense a dialogue between the God who confronts his people with his presence through his word and the people's response in faith and repentance. A personal word is best delivered in the context of the messenger meeting with the recipient. Last paragraph. So what will be revealed if vast swaths of Protestants do not return to physical church when COVID finally settles down, surely that the theology of preaching as God's confrontational presence in and through proclamation has, in other words, it's only being revealed, it's saying what's already happened. It has at some point been supplanted in the minds of many by a notion that it is merely a transmission of information or a pep talk. And that listening as active, faithful response has correspondingly been reduced to a passive reception of the kind that televisions and countless other screens may have made the default position possible. To put it another way, it will reveal that preachers have become confused with life coaches or entertainers. And congregations have been replaced by audiences and autonomous consumers. Such a scenario will be apocalyptic.
it is both revealing and a catastrophe. End of the article. And so let me say it in another way. The majority of evangelical church people today would be shocked to read a sermon from any of the Puritans of the 1600s. They would see that these Christians preached to their people as though their eternal life depended on it. The Puritans believed, and rightly so, that without perseverance of the faith, the result will be not merely a lack of growth, not merely a lack of discipleship, but it will be eternal damnation. And therefore, since preaching and pastoral ministry is a means to the believer's perseverance, the goal of the pastor is not merely to edify the Christian, help you be a little bit more discipled. The goal of preaching in Christ's church is salvation. All Christian preaching is a means of final salvation. It's not hard to see why, if you've ever read any Puritan sermons, it's not hard to see why they were constantly so blood earnest, serious in their preaching. But it's not because of people like Sibes or Richard Baxter or John Owen or later Jonathan Edwards or Charles Spurgeon that I say that preaching is the means and put an indefinite article there. A crucial means of the salvation of God's people. It's Paul who convinces me. Now, I want you to flip over to 1 Timothy for a second. Listen to what he says to Pastor Timothy in chapter 4, verse 16. Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. Because by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And the hearers in the context are not people outside the church. As verse 12, jump up a few verses to verse 12, makes clear. Timothy, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. There it is. That's who he's referring to. Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. More is at stake in pastoral preaching and teaching than just greater or lesser progress. In discipleship. The salvation of believers is on the line. 
But Philippians, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. I'm convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And then Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. And he's re- he, he just recounted much of his suffering that he has to experience. And he says this. Therefore, Timothy, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. In order that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The salvation of the elect happens through God-appointed means. Timothy, I endure everything for the sake of the elect in order that they also may obtain salvation. The eternal glory that is promised to them. And when God appoints means, those means are indispensable. You cannot do without them. So when Paul says he suffers for the salvation of the elect here, he does not mean in this text. God has a lot more elect out there that have not yet been converted to Christ and therefore I'm going to go get them. There's a tr- that's true. Missions needs to happen. Evangelism needs to happen. But much like what he says in Colossians 1.24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Okay, here's a church. They're, they're born again. They've been baptized. They're believers. And, he said, and he's, he's never met them, by the way. And he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. So in the context of 2 Timothy 2.10, what he says right after that is a very familiar hymn in the early church that they all knew. And he says, if we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. And that we, it includes Paul. If Paul denies Christ, Christ will deny Him. The final salvation in the resurrection of the elect depends on their not denying Christ. It depends on their enduring in the faith and persevering to the end. Since Paul's pastoral work is a means of helping the elect endure, he sees all of his labor as a means of their salvation. It's no wonder Paul said in 2 Corinthians 
chapter 11, and apart from all of these other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the existing churches I planted. If you would turn to 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Here's the context Paul had previously already written. The context is that the Corinthians had a numbers of problems that are being corrected. And there's a particular member of the church whom Paul says you need to deal with their sin for their soul's sake. And Paul wrote them a letter that was very straightforward. It was hard. It was confronting. And it caused them grief. But Paul rejoices because their grief produced repentance. So he writes in verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So what was the goal in what Paul preached to them in this tough pastoral letter his goal was repentance of a professing Christian that would lead to salvation Paul's admonitions to them had caused that wavering believer to sober up and to work out his salvation with fear and trembling as the book of James at the very end says, it can say it of Paul. Paul, in the preaching of that letter, had brought back a wandering sinner from the error of his way and thus will save his soul. Okay. Now, if you're hearing me accurately, there is nothing that I have said that implies that true Christians can lose their salvation. But it does imply that one can be called a Christian, can be called a brother on the basis of outward appearances, but in the end prove to not be an actual brother because of failing to persevere in faith to the end. I mean, such people are described in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, and many of these were teachers in the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out in order that it might become plain or clear that they all are not of us. And so, so those persons, those teachers, they were and would have charitably been called Christians or brothers for whom Christ died before they went out. But in the end, they proved they never really were brothers. Or sisters. 
And so, in Philippians chapter 1, Paul saw that not dying would mean fruitful word ministry to the Philippians. The fruit is, is their joy and their persevering faith. It is their hearts and, the, and their faith developing and glow, going, going deeper. What is at stake in the life of the church in preaching, in correction, in sound doctrine, in admonishing, in encouraging is not merely the church's progress in making disciples, but it is perseverance of the saints unto final salvation. Timothy, careful note of your own life and, and, and the teaching because by it you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Now, okay, look at that. Someone can draw a wrong, terrible conclusion from that, and, and, it, it, and it has been drawn. It would be a mistake from anything that I said to think, oh, I know what we should do then. I know what I should do as a pastor. I should just get up every Sunday morning and make sure I just preach a three or four minute little sermon uh, on the gospel. Because, you know, like... like Hey, we would do, oh, save people, oh, lost. Let me tell you what the gospel is now in three minutes and then come up and pray. That is not the solution. And for the Puritans, no way. For Jesus, no way. For Paul, no way. When the Apostle Peter said in chapter 2, verse 2 of 1 Peter, like newborn infants, Long for the pure milk, spiritual milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up into salvation. When he said that, long for the milk, he did not mean milk the way the Hebrew writer used milk as opposed to solid food and steak and potatoes and meat and depth. No, when Peter said that, his whole point was just to say, do you see how a two-month-old baby screams for mommy's milk? He says, you, he commands them, do that. Because that baby will die without it. And it is only by feeding on the Word of God that one can grow and persevere and attain final salvation. It's not only biblical church history and real persons are just strewn throughout this earth, buried now. And the evidence will be at judgment day. It is growing in your love for God the way He has revealed Himself in Scripture. 
And there are such contours that, that, that if you're 10 years down the road of your conversion, you should be seeing new contours in the Word of God and then, and then the, the molding and the pounding and the loving discipline of the Father as He's working those things in your life. Growing from one degree of glory to another. There's no standing still in the Christian life. There isn't. Because this world is not solid ground. You come to Christ, you're in a river. And you are to be swimming upstream. That's what God guarantees for all the elect. If you lay back, stand still, you're not in the same place. You're drifting backward, down the river. You're either advancing toward final salvation or drifting away from it. And drifting is mortally dangerous. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. The writer says, beginning with verse 1, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Churches whose leadership whose preaching do not constantly point its people to the inexhaustible beauty and riches of Christ in order to stir them up to go forward and to love and to good deeds and to worship. Well, then they are by definition encouraging, drifting downstream where many may shipwreck their faith. There's only two possibilities here in Hebrews 2, 1 to 3. Either we give heed to the word that we heard, or we drift away from it. And he asked the question, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Neglecting our great salvation does not mean or it means not giving heed to what has been revealed in Scripture. That's why the writer to the Hebrews goes on to say, just flip over, chapter 3 of Hebrews. Talking to believers. Verse 12. Take care. Again. 
That, that's, a, that, that, that's a Puritan kind of way they would say. Be very careful. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But instead, in, try to do verse 13 with, well, this is cool. I watched the whole church service only. And when you have a chance to, to go, and if you're going to, if it's safe for you to go at this point. We're talking about in the long run when this is over, that many will stay home. Try to do verse 13, but exhort one another. Every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin because we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. There's no contradiction. Actually, the Hebrew writer is so clear in the Greek. We have come to share in Christ perfect tense. It's a truism that, that has happened in our conversion, and, and it carries on out up into the present day and continually go. This is what the perfect tense denotes. And he says, it is utterly true. There are no dropouts. Well, how do you know who they are? That's the last clause. You know who they are because it's those who persevered to the end. If we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And so Paul, in his saying, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. That's, that's essentially the same thinking and admonition he gave to Timothy. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Because by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so... Timothy, do it. Paul, do it. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, for you will incur a stricter judgment. And so what it means at its core, to say it in the negative, is this. It means do not dare stunt the growth of my people with a meatless diet. with a shallow diet, with fluff and entertainment. Look at chapter 5 of Hebrews for a moment. And notice there how dangerous that that kind of shallowness was to them. Start with verse 11, chapter 5. About this we have much to say. And it's hard to explain. Why? Luke? Or whoever wrote it. You don't, you don't know how to teach? It's not his point. And it's hard to explain since, or in other words, because you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, like a baby, 
not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The dull and boring, I'm bored. The no depth mentality had sent them drifting backward down the river. This is why this sermon of the book of Hebrews is written to save them, get them there. One of the main means appointed by God to cause us believers to progress in faith and joy is the ministry of the Word. As Jesus said in John 10, My sheep hear my voice. I've been through the theological higher education. There are so many other ideas out there on how you ought to be a pastor that lead one to not trust those words. Jesus calls pastors to trust the word. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. They follow me. Peter, feed my sheep. I give them eternal life, and they will never, never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Oh, to trust the word of Jesus, to trust the scripture as a pastor. I'm going to tell you, I I can't save a soul. I can't make people hear. All of this is a work of God. In one sense, the freedom of that. I fear one thing. Not treating the word as delicately as a brain surgeon would want to treat someone's brain. And there's no perfection, but there is forgiveness, and there is growth, and there's, I've changed my mind, I've saw this wrong, but it is just the confidence. Jesus creates his church, he builds his church, he grows his church, he knows whose are his. Feed my sheep. The elect will love the Word of God. That's why Paul says, if I remain 
and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. It's going to happen. Joy in what they will hear through Paul as their faith is boosted. The elect, they will grow. They will. We will repent and go on repenting. And they will most assuredly be saved. But not apart from the ministry of the word which the sheep live upon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. For in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And by the Spirit of Christ in the preaching of the Gospel, those of us who are in Him have beheld His glory. Because you have shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In the very face gospel of Christ. Lord, you're good. Continue to work in us. The presence of your spirit is we slowly turn to your table. The joy, the joy of our lives.